So we've been studying from the book of Hebrews, and we've come to the end, and at the end, in Hebrews 13, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews just seems to want to compress as much last thoughts in as he possibly can, and he's been just giving us these zingers, one after the other, just like rapid fire. And today we're going to take a look at Hebrews 13, 1 to 14. Did you know that pride can blind? Pride can blind. Just think of the uh, successful sports franchise that is has experienced great glory, but they take their eye off the ball for a while because they're so good. And uh, they start to let the little things slip. And all of a sudden, they're not so great after all. Their pride has gotten in the way of their sight, and they can't see. What about the celebrity who begins to uh, believe the hype? <laughs> that they can walk on water. And uh, they forget how fragile their celebrity really is. Or the intellectual who becomes so confident in their knowledge that they block out any other possibilities, and they're left behind. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you are blind guides. You're blind guides. Think about that. Blind guides. Guides who are blind. Right? They're supposed to be leading, shepherding, and guiding and they're blind. They can't see. So what was he saying to these guys? What was it that was causing their blindness? Well, the Apostle Paul, in his book in Romans, was, was trying so hard to help the Jewish people understand that even though they were God's chosen people, they still needed a Savior. And so he kind of alludes to the pride that existed amongst those people at that time. He writes to them in Romans 2. Now, now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed in the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And he goes on and he says, yeah, you are special people. You're a chosen people. However, you need God. And you need to acknowledge that the one that you have been expecting, the great Messiah, was crucified. You see, the Jewish people had come to a place where they had been chosen by God, but they had taken great pride in the fact that they were chosen by God, that they were a holy nation. And so instead of taking that great gift and putting it to good purpose as God intended for them to be a light to all the nations, 
they became condescending and arrogant and looked down. And a matter of fact, instead of being a light, they were considered enemy of people, and people felt very alienated to them. The Jews wouldn't even enter a non-Jew's house because they were lower than them. And so Paul is trying to get through to them this understanding in Romans that they are in sin and are sinners just like the Gentiles and that they need a Savior. It was this pride that led the Jewish people to reject Jesus Christ. They could not accept that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be crucified. Couldn't see how that could be. That one of the chosen ones, the chosen one, would be crucified. This is why Paul in his Corinthians letter, first one, says, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jews because they couldn't get past the idea that their Messiah would be crucified and that there was a purpose in that crucifixion. You see, the cross became a barrier to them. They couldn't see any purpose in it. His death proved that he wasn't the one. You see, next to killing someone, and have you ever thought about that? Jesus Christ could have been killed effectively in many, many ways. But he wasn't. Besides Killing someone, the other main reason you do crucifixion is to humiliate somebody. To hoist them up in public. To give them a slow death so that people can walk by and ridicule, hurl insults, mock, spit at. If you're God, you summon your angels to come down and save you. He can't even save himself. So for the Jewish leaders whose choice of capital punishment was stoning, they figured they could get more bang for the buck. In a crucifixion. Because this imposter would be humiliated on the cross. The crucifixion was an unimaginable means of death for their chosen Messiah. It was inconceivable, inconceivable that the people of Israel, the nation of priests, that holy people would die such a humiliating death. 
And this, despite they had been given a prophecy through the great prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, we read these words. This is a messianic message. This is a foretelling of the coming Messiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. But later on, we find out in that same passage, this is the one who has given you peace. He is the one that makes things right between you and the Holy God. He brings peace to you. You couldn't see it. Paul could see it. A Jew's Jew. The finest. Exemplary. An up-and-cover. In the Jewish world, stellar. <laughs> Look at his words. May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, this identifying with the Christ crucified is so radical to his people. But he boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ because he understood that it was the means by which people could be made right once and for all with Jesus Christ. And so our passage in Hebrews 13, verses 11 to 14, references that. It alludes to this concept that within Judaism, Crucifixion is such a humiliating death. And so we read, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp. I love those words. You folks were not called to some kind of finally established perfect association of high-brow people. You were called outside the city gates to associate with a crucified Christ. That's our boast. That's what we take pride in. We go outside the city gates. The author here is alluding to the Day of Atonement. He's talking about Jesus in terms of the Day of Atonement, because that's all the Jewish people had in the law. And rightfully so, it was God-given, it was ordained by God. But it was to show, it was to foreshadow the coming Christ. And so on the Day of Atonement, the priest had to wash, then he put on clean underwear. I'm not joking. And then he put on 
his linens, his fancy linens, right? And he took two goats. And one goat, he went in and he slaughtered it and he sprinkled the blood in the most holy place. And it was a bloody mess. And he was all bloody. And in there it was all bloody. It was a bloody mess. And he did that to atone for the sins of the Israelites. And it happened once a year. And then symbolically, the second goat was prayed over after the bloody mess. And the sins of the people of Israel were placed on that goat's head. And that goat was set free. Never to be seen again. But the goat who had died, you know, in the law, a lot of the things that were sacrificed were not just thrown away. They were used, right? The priests ate the bodies. There was blood, yes, and there was fat burned, and there was stuff. But it was useful. But not on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the carcass of that goat was taken outside the city gates and was burned. This is Jesus. This is the picture of Jesus Christ who went outside the city's gates, shed his blood for us so that we could be made right with Christ, with God. You see, the author of Hebrews is connecting degradation of crucifixion with a means of salvation. He made something inglorious glorious. Something to embrace, something to identify, not something to shun. And we have seen in Hebrews 9 as we studied through how effective Christ's sacrifice was and how it did away with the Day of Atonement, which had to be done every year because it was not effective in making us right before God. And because it wasn't effective, it had to be done every year. But Jesus Christ died once and for all time. And so we read in Hebrews 9, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater, more perfect tabernacle that is now made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal, not temporary, eternal redemption. And so the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews, Jewish people, who are having to grapple with this idea that crucified Christ was something that they should identify with instead of shun. And as they did identify with the risen, or the crucified Christ and the risen Christ, it was as much as heresy amongst their people. 
wasn't something that they took lightly. After all, identifying with something that is considered by the majority disgraceful requires great courage. So the question to us this morning is, are you prepared to bear the disgrace of identifying with Jesus Christ? Are you prepared, like these early members of the Hebrew church, are you prepared to identify with Jesus Christ? The thought of identifying with Christ being a cause of humiliation has changed. It's no longer because Jesus was crucified. Matter of fact, if you ask people in the world now, they would sort of say that, see that as something that they would compliment about Christ, that he was willing to die this awful death for us. It's not the crucifixion of Christ in our culture that brings humiliation for those who want to identify with Jesus Christ. When I grew up, I'm old. When I was growing up, I was at the very tail end of the time when to be a Christian was respectable. As a matter of fact, I can recall... People who didn't go to church kind of seen as, you know, people, bad people that we want to avoid. I'm not saying that's good at all. We identify with Jesus Christ who's outside the city gates. We're rebels. But I remember that. I remember it was sort of like a Christian aura about the culture in North America, you know? Everybody went to church, and Lord knows, everybody said they were Christian, right? Oh, yeah, Christian, I'm, I'm Christian, right? Everybody identified. Today, to identify with Jesus Christ is something best not spoken about in public, really, right? You're, you're one of those, right? You're one of those. Our culture has taken an about face on this. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying, hey, let's go back to the glory days when we thought heathens were, you know, despicable and we kept away from them. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that our culture has gone from uh, a Christian ambiance, if you want, or, or sense to a secular sense. And I would say post-Christian sense. And so to identify with Jesus Christ takes some nerve and takes some courage, to be quite frank. We live in an increasingly secular society, but we live according to the sacred, holy word of God. In a global community, which has so many wonderful things, we find within it 
that there are many ways to God. It's a multi-faith global community in which we live, but we believe in one way to God. We believe in the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. We live in a culture that is cynical about absolute truth, yet we believe we live life by the truth, the singular truth. We live in a world that finds morality kind of limiting and quite fluid. But we are willing to clearly identify that which has been right and wrong since eternity. And I could go on and on, but to be a devout follower of Jesus Christ and his word has become a source of shame. Sadly. And if you've not experienced that yet, stick to your guns. Because you will. It starts off very subtly. We move from the majority view to the minority view. Now we're past that. We <laughs> start losing a voice. You lose your place at the table. It moves into alienation. You become ostracized. You become ridiculed. And eventually, it becomes a matter of legality. Your identity with Christ becomes a criminal offense. And ultimately, like our brothers and sisters, in the early days of the church, it becomes a matter of life and death. And the question again I have for you is, are you willing, are you prepared to bear the disgrace of identifying with Jesus Christ? That's what's in store. You don't have to be a prophet, and I'm not. I see it every day. Are you prepared? Or are you willing to compromise? I like being part of the scorned outside the city gates. <laughs> because I find out there true life, real life. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage of scripture that was laid on a brother's heart, that he recorded it faithfully. I thank you, Lord, for the way it calls us to something deeper. I thank you for calling us to a narrow way. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us 
to figure it out or left us to soldier on without you, but you are there with us through it all. And that we can experience you in powerful, powerful ways. Lord, give us the courage that we need to identify with the disgrace of Jesus Christ. We know it's not a disgrace. But the world does. Help us, Lord. Help us to be true. In Jesus' name, amen.